And we're going to be in the, the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 2, the end of that chapter, the beginning of the next. If you have a Bible, I want to turn there, or you can follow along in the bulletin. It's printed there. You may have figured out from the readings. We're going to be talking about the Sabbath today, um, which is an odd subject. But I think it's important for us, and uh, pretty insightful into uh, understanding our own hearts before God. Have you ever heard of a restless leg syndrome, young people? I know old people have heard of restless leg syndrome. Some young people. Um, it's this uh, malicious little affliction that says, you will not rest. You know, it doesn't bother you if you're up walking around doing something. It's fine. But as soon as you try to sit down and stretch out a little bit, it's like it runs an electrical current in the marrow of your leg bones, and they just start shaking. And it's like your body protesting against the idea that you might ever sleep or rest a little bit. Um, I don't like it. And it's a little bit of a picture for me of the, uh, what I call the restless soul syndrome, which seems to be probably common to human beings everywhere, but maybe especially to Americans, uh, that we do not rest spiritually. We're not good at it. We don't like to do it that much. It's elusive to us when we try to do it. Uh, there's just too much guilt, too long a to-do list, too much anxiety that spins our brains around, makes it hard for us to ever really feel like we're at rest in our souls, at rest before God. Now, so the American can-do spirit sort of militates against rest. Eugene Peterson has a, a quote, he says uh, that, Busyness, I'll say it right. Busyness is an illness of the spirit. Do you believe that? I think that may be unpatriotic. Busyness is an illness of the spirit. I mean, everybody I talk to and ask how you're doing says almost with happiness and pride, what? Oh, I'm busy. Busy, busy. I, I like better probably what Seneca said when he heard about the Jewish Sabbath idea of resting one day in seven. He said, that's absurd. You'll waste a seventh of your life. That sounds patriotic. Right? <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds like us more. Um, but when you come to talk about the Sabbath, which is God's gift to us of rest for our bodies and rest for our souls, rest for employees, shoot, even rest for the animals, if you listen to the Old Testament reading, His kindness. You're not slaves anymore, so you don't have to work every day anymore. Here's a gift to you. You can rest. And we don't experience it much. We talk about it more than we actually experience it. We argue about it more than we actually enjoy it, I would say. The church has had a pretty long history right from the time of Jesus of arguing about the Sabbath day and what is that supposed to look like and what are you supposed to do and not supposed to do and who's doing it right and who's doing it wrong and all of that that sort of distracts us from the point of the gift which is that we might actually have rest for our souls. Jesus promises that, and in this argument with these people who are arguing with him about the rules, he points us to the idea that in him, we really can have rest for our souls. So that's what we're going to talk about. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please come help us. We feel tantalized by the idea of being at rest before you, peace before you, and we ask that you'd make it a reality for us. Use your word in our lives to draw us close to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
Right, we're going to start at verse 23 of Mark 2. It says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for anybody but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? He said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. I read a book by David Brooks, who I tend to like. Uh, as a sociologist. Um, it's called On Paradise Drive. I was moving back to the suburbs several years ago and figured that this was what I needed to read to get prepared. It was a pretty good choice. But in it, he talked about something that he called um, a deeply held American belief. And that is a belief in the theology of achievement. The theology of achievement. And that is the idea that we all have this tremendous potential and probably tremendous destiny of what we might and should accomplish with our lives. And that if we go about with rigor, getting rid of all the obstacles in the way of us succeeding this way, we'll thrive and become our best selves and really bloom in the world if we apply ourselves hard enough, often enough, diligently enough. The theology of achievement. Uh, He said this creed is not... Easy on its disciples, though, because there's no rest in the theology of achievement. There's no Sabbath. Um, Instead, what you have in the theology of achievement is a voice in the back of your head that's always there that says, not there yet. And so you never get off the treadmill. Not there yet. That's the voice that you constantly hear. And he quoted uh, Anna Quindlin. Some of you may know her. She's an author. She used to write for Newsweek as a columnist. Um, She was given a uh, commencement speech at Villanova. And part of it went like this. She said, get a life, a real life, not a manic pursuit of the next promotion, the bigger paycheck, the larger house. Get a life in which you notice the smell of salt water, in which you're generous, Work in a soup kitchen. Be a big brother or big sister. Look at the fuzz on a baby's ear. Here you could learn in the classroom. There the classroom is everywhere. Is that good advice? 
seems like decent advice. Um, but consider how arduous that advice is. Because Anna Quinlan isn't saying, abandon your career, uh, stop working, your regular job, and all of your aspirations there. She's saying, do these things on top of what you're already doing in the Achievatron, in the theology of achievement. Add these things to what you're already doing, right? Uh, to your hustle and ambition, add tranquility and generosity. Just makes it more tiring. David Brooks said after he read the commencement speech, he said, when does Anna Quinlan think we're going to sleep, right? When would you ever do this? If you become all that you're supposed to be by whatever that voice in your head says you're supposed to be or what the people around you say you're supposed to be, you might as well give up on ever having any rest. It's just not a formula for having rest for your soul. The Pharisees, who are the antagonists in this story, who are spying on Jesus and trying to get him in trouble, um, they're very, very seriously devout believers. Uh, and a lot of their devotion centered around their understanding and practice of the Sabbath and being very careful about how they did or didn't observe the day of rest. Their theology was the theology of achievement, but in church we call it the theology of works righteousness. That is, you think that God is going to like you and accept you because you perform well. Works righteousness, the theology of achievement, same thing. You get yourself where you need to go. right? You handle what needs to be handled in life and with God so that you'll be okay with Him. And so what they did is they took this gift, this Sabbath day that God had given them, and they turned it into a means of trying to prove themselves. Like, we're going to use the Sabbath to achieve religiously. To climb the religious ladder. Which turns the whole point of the Sabbath on top on its head. Right? The Sabbath is a gift to us where we can stop doing our good works for a day and bask in the good works that Jesus did for us. Right? It's not about our works. It's about us resting and appreciating what He's done for us. And we get to do that. Uh, to step off the treadmill one full day in seven at least as a gift from God to appreciate what he's done, not to achieve so that we can get his favor. And the Pharisees had twisted this to see the Sabbath as, as a performance art, right? You know, we're going to perform on the Sabbath and make sure God is in our debt and loves us because we're doing it right. So what Jesus says to them, I think you could summarize this way, is to... Take a day and silence the voice in the back of your head that says, not there yet, not there yet, and replace that deliberately with his voice from the cross and his last words that say, it is finished. Sunday you stop and say, it is finished. You can not there yet if you need to on Monday, right? But Sunday you get to say, it is finished and bask in that and you're given the day off. You're given the day off by the king. So when these people come and accuse him and say, you're doing it wrong with the Sabbath, you're not supposed to be picking that grain, all this, Jesus doesn't say, let's debate about casuistry and the rules for the Sabbath and what's really required and what's just a part of your tradition. And let's, let's uh, draw this out on graph paper so uh, we can decide who's right and who's wrong about every fine point of Sabbath observance. No, when they started barking at him about the Sabbath, he told them a story instead. 
Because their problem wasn't that they didn't have a precise, uh, worked out view of exactly what's required on the Sabbath or not. The problem was their whole attitude of achievement. And he tells the story to try to get at that underlying attitude, which was their real problem. And the story really clears it up for us, I think. He says, remember when David ate the showbread that only the priests were supposed to eat? And that's the end of the story. <laughs> like, uh-huh, yeah, kind of remember that? Yeah, um, what? <laughs> I'm not sure how that's supposed to help me. Um, David did something he wasn't supposed to do, but it was okay. And that means... I'm not sure how it applies, right? So what, what's the point of the story? And the point of the story is this, I say commonly because I read commentary, is uh, David, when he did this, when he ate the bread in the temple that was really supposed to only be for the priests, David had been anointed as king already, but he hadn't been crowned. He was like, Saul was still the lame duck, and he was after David, so David was running from him in exigent circumstances. And uh, so... When they were hungry, they ate that bread because that's the only bread they had. Uh, Which sort of is to say, look, the law isn't meant just to crush you under some grinding wheel of performance so that you can check off all the boxes that you're doing right. But the real point that he's getting at is the reason you're all okay with David eating that bread in the temple is because it was David. And in hindsight, you know who David really was. He's the greatest king in Israel. And he's sort of like the precursor of the real king, the Messiah who's going to come. And because it was David, it's okay. And Jesus is saying, if you had the benefit of hindsight, or if you were clued in to know who I am, if you knew who was here now, you wouldn't be barking at me about the Sabbath. Because, as he says in verse 28... The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And when you say the Son of Man to a coached up, uh, very serious about the Old Testament uh, Jewish audience, they know what you mean. The Son of Man is Daniel's vision of the Messiah, the king who's going to come like David, but whose kingdom is going to last forever. The real king, the ultimate Messiah king. And Jesus is saying, that's who's here. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Son of Man. And if you were clued into that at all, then you wouldn't be responding this way. And you'd realize the Sabbath is about me. And you're never going to have rest for your soul unless you find it from me. And Pharisees, when they heard that story, said, Oh, I see now. Can we please be your disciples? <laughs> they didn't actually say that. Right? They just became furious with him. Furious with him. Because he's coming to them and saying, look, religion, Christian religion is not a ladder that you climb to get to God. It's a gift that you receive from God. It's not theology of achievement. It's theology of grace. God giving you what you don't deserve. And they were liking the theology of achievement plan better. Because they were winning. At least they were beating everybody else at it. Right? They were the best at the theology of achievement game. And Jesus was saying, I don't play that game. I play the theology of grace only game. And that irritated them no end. So, he said, you're never going to understand the Sabbath. You're never going to understand the rest of your souls unless you understand me. That it comes through me. And they're like, that's not fair. We're trying really hard. And it's it's not right. As diligent as we are, the sacrifices we've made for you to come and say that those things don't matter. 
that Jesus did come and say those things don't matter. And the reason he said this to them and, and picked a fight over it really with them um, is that when you have a theology of achievement, it distorts God's law. Like what God asks of us, what he wants from us, gets twisted in your mind if you're on the treadmill trying to climb the ladder to God. Uh, you, you warp his laws, and we'll look at the Sabbath as an example of that. I'll give you a couple of ways that their Achievatron messed up their thinking about God and his law. One is the Achievatron will make you stricter than God. Very often. You'll, you'll get stricter than God because you'll think, well, if I'm not supposed to touch that table, wouldn't it be better if I built a fence out here so that I don't even get near that table? So I can make sure I don't touch the table. Right? Arrow on the side of caution. And uh, it makes great sense in the Achievatron to speak that way. But biblically, it's not any better to be stricter than God than it is to be looser than God. God knows what laws he wants to make. And he's fine making them. And doesn't need our help with this. But the Sabbath has always tempted people to make extra laws to protect the Sabbath. So we don't get close to working. You know what a Sabbath elevator is? No one's from New York. Uh, Sabbath elevator is an elevator that gets set on um, Friday evening until Saturday evening with all the buttons pressed, and they stay pressed for the whole 24 hours. So no one has to work on the Sabbath by pressing the button. They probably have to work on their attitudes, waiting if they live on a high floor <laughs> to get there. But they're protecting the law, right? Erring on the side of caution. Um, sort of, we used to do this in the South with alcohol. Right? Alcoholism is a problem, right? So the way we can make sure we don't become alcoholics is don't ever drink anything. That sounds pretty smart, doesn't it? Uh, what's wrong? What's, what's the problem with that, with that plan? Well, it's being stricter than God. God's able to make the laws he wants made. And that's not the law he made. But the idea makes sense if you're on the, the Achievatron, the theology of achievement, to say um, to err on the side of caution is better. Biblically speaking, to err on the side of caution is to err. Right? Maybe that's obvious. But it's not any better to be stricter than God than it is to be looser than God. So you tend to get stricter than God when you're trying to theology of achievement. You also get hypercritical. Because you're just always inevitably judging other people and judging yourself against other people and measuring yourself. And doing what the Pharisees were doing here, which is basically spying. Like, that's how they decided to observe the Sabbath rest, is to go spy on people. Right? They do anything wrong? Are we going to catch them? They do anything wrong? Do you see anything? That's what they're doing. In a cornfield, apparently. Or rye field, whatever. You know... That's what they were doing on their Sabbath, is spying on people. Kids, you ever get in trouble for being a tattletale? Guess what my sister did? I'm telling, I'm telling, I'm telling. And your parents go, thank you so much for telling me. I had my suspicions, but now they're confirmed. Where is she? <laughs> no, they always yell at you for tattling, right? Don't tattle. But, 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 the, but my case is airtight. I, I, eyewitness, I saw her do this. Don't tattle. Because every parent knows, if you're tattling, you're just condemning someone else to make yourself look better. To justify yourself, you condemn your sister. And parents are pretty clever, right? so they don't tattle. 
you get more trouble for tattling than whatever you've got tattle on about. You know, humor me a minute. There, I watch golf on TV. Don't be smug. Don't judge me. Um, there are people who watch golf so that if they see the most minor rules infraction happen during the televised round, they can pick up their telephone in which they have the number for the network, call and say, I want to report a rules violation that I saw on the broadcast. And they changed this rule a couple years ago, but they used to call down and tell, and it would change the outcome of tournaments and they would penalize people. Like, they moved a twig on their backswing when they did the super slow-mo Konica vision camera. You know, I saw a twig move, so that's a penalty. I'm calling it in. You're like, who are you? Where did you get the phone number? Like, but also, do you come like, with a Miranda warning? Do you, does it say on your forehead, like, anything you say to me can and will be used against you? Because the Pharisees kind of needed a Miranda warning on their foreheads. They were there to try to find something on Jesus. Right? That's what they were doing. So, and you know that if you start trying to find fault in everybody else, you get blinder and blinder to yourself. It's one of, the, one of the benefits of fault finding is that you don't have to think so much about yourself and what you're doing wrong. You know, like the kid who said, Daddy, Daddy, Johnny was, had his eyes open during the prayer. You're like, how do you know? <laughs> you know um, Johnny might have been praying with his eyes open, but I know what you were doing. <laughs> so you're in trouble, right? So here the, the, the Pharisees, presumably out of seriousness about the Sabbath and devotion to God, um, in which they're very earnest, are saying, you're doing it wrong on the Sabbath by picking those heads of grain. And Jesus basically turned around and said, well, you're observing the Sabbath by plotting murder. <laughs> Which one of those things are you more concerned about morally? <laughs> you're plotting the murder of a rabbi on your Sabbath day. We were eating a little grain. But they lost any sense of proportionality because the theology of achievement demands that you do that. It makes you a fault finder. You can't help it. That's why the whole blogosphere is driven by this idea, I'm going to justify myself by condemning others. I'll feel better if I light you up online. I'll feel better about myself. And that works, but it doesn't ever lead you to a good place where you could have rest for your soul. And that's the last thing that the theology of achievement does to mess up the law, is it makes it joyless makes it joyless. Think about what happened in, in chapter 3 here. These people are standing in a room and there's a dude with a hand that is just ruined. It's not like, uh, like a faith healer saying that someone here has lumbago and now you don't. Like, it's like a hand they could all see and Jesus said stretch out your hand and he did Miraculously. Have you ever seen anything like that? If you did, would you ever stop telling that story about what you saw, how amazed you were? I would, I would never stop telling that story. That's astounding. Their response was anger and sterility. 
They saw that happen and they didn't say, wow. <laughs> they didn't say, thanks be to God. Did you see what he did? That's amazing. They, did, they just said, I want to kill him. That was their response to that. They're joyless. And Jesus was mad about that. It's like, I gave you a gift in the Sabbath day because I love you. I'm delighted in you. Like You're not slaves anymore. I brought you out of Egypt. You don't have to work every day. Sit down and enjoy what I've done for you. Um, you got the day off. It's a snow day for you. Um, spend it with me. And they've taken that Turned it on his head so bad that they could never feel any rest with him or any joy with him. They just hated him. They just hated him. And that made him angry at them because their hearts were hard, he says. So, if you, if you say something to somebody who's on the Chibatron, say, what, do you ever rest? Do you ever find joy? What's the answer? The answer is basically, well, when I... When I finish getting my act together, I'll, I'll have joy then. I'll be happy then. I'll be a good and calm person then, but i got a lot to do in the meantime. I'll be, I'll be joyful then. But Christian logic is you rest first and have joy first. Then you work. One of the big changes in the Sabbath that's caused some arguments even still is after Jesus' resurrection... The day of rest was moved to the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week. And the logic behind that presumably is this. We rest first, then we work. We receive forgiveness and grace first, then we repent. We receive the gift, then we go out and work as an expression of thanks. We do not work so that we can be congratulated at the end of the week for having done so well. We rest first because this is a theology of grace, of gift, of rest. And we move out from there to work. And that's something the Pharisees just couldn't sniff in the way they were thinking about the law. But I know how I think on Sunday. It's like, well, I'll rest better if I can get these taxes done. Right? You know, instead of sitting here worrying about them, I'll go ahead and do them. I'll get those dishes done and then I'll... I'll have more peace if you know the place is straightened out a little bit. If I plan my week out in advance, I'll be able to enjoy the five minutes at night before I go to sleep on Sunday. So that'll be good. I have a uh, lightly used self-help book called Getting Things Done. I'm sure some of you have seen it. Uh, it's about how to organize your life. And then I've got an app that works with it on the phone, and the app is called Nirvana. <laughs> Because if you could get your life organized and all into to-do lists so that you never forgot anything, you didn't have to worry about forgetting anything, it's all there and you're going to do it, you've got a plan, you can all do it, then you reach nirvana, right? This is the Achievatron, the theology of achievement. What Jesus is saying, that book, Getting Things Done on Sunday, that's a coaster. <laughs> Don't open it. <laughs> it's snow day. Don't open it. You got the day off. The king's giving you the day off. You can rest. Before you're done, I know you're not done. I know that there's stuff left to do. You don't have to. I know you can get a lot done on Sunday when everybody else is resting. You can get ahead. You don't have to. You don't have to. You can rest in me. So, 
like to throw in a classics reference every once in a while for Mr. Belknap. Um, you remember the sirens? Odysseus had to deal with the sirens that sang the music that would lure people in and crash their ships on the rocks. Or in the modern version, love you up and turn you into a horny toad. Um, remember Odysseus's plan to avoid crashing his rocks because of the sirens? He put wax in all of his crew's ears and then lashed himself to the mast. He wanted to hear the music, but he didn't want to go crash his boat. And so he lashed himself to the mast and told his soldiers to point their swords at him so that if he somehow escaped, they could stop him. Right? Plug your ears, aim the swords, lash yourself to the mast, you will avoid the sirens. And that kind of works. But before that, with the Argonauts, Orpheus had to deal with the sirens. And you remember how Orpheus dealt with the sirens and their music that was so enticing? He played prettier music. He played a harp that was more compelling than the siren song. Odysseus, theology of achievement. Orpheus, theology of grace and rest. Jesus plays the more beautiful music for us. He doesn't lash us to the mast and point a sword at us. He plays the beautiful music for us because we're never going to find rest for our souls apart from him. And he knows it. Like St. Augustine said in the day, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Let's pray.